0: Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, I'll ask you to turn to our Old Testament text this morning, Genesis 12. We'll be reading from the first nine verses of Genesis 12 this morning. I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word. chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and the Lord told, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moran. That time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Then he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him from there. He moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. The reason I chose this passage is because this is in many ways, the founding of the people of God. The first time God is called to a specific person, Abram, and uses him to found the covenant people. And when Abram hears God's call to leave his kin, to leave his home, and to go to far away Canaan, Abram responds with obedience. He doesn't know where he's going or what God is going to do really at this point beyond some promises, but he obeys. And the first thing that he does basically is he goes and he builds an altar so that he can worship the God that he has appeared to him. In contrast, the passage that we're going to be reading about today is Satan calling Jesus not to worship God, but to worship him instead. So I wanted to bring out that contrast. The first time that we see um, a man of God, in Abram, worshiping God by building an altar, and then the call for Satan to tell the son of God, worship me instead. So that in mind, let's turn to our primary passage today in Matthew four. We'll be finishing up this passage and finishing up this last temptation with Matthew four verses eight through 11. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you for this passage of scripture that you've given to us, preserved throughout the ages, and you've called us to read upon and to meditate on this morning. Father, we ask that you bless our hearts and bless the scripture to our hearts. As we consider it, help us to do so free from sin, unguided by your Holy Spirit. Guide me, Father, as I preach upon this passage and let nothing come from my mouth but that which accords with the truth that you've given us in scripture. We thank you for this passage of scripture and we ask that you bless it to us now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and savior in his name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a certain exclusivity to Christianity that really makes it different from the vast majority of other world religions, really all other world religions. You see, many religions are malleable, you might say, in terms of how they accept other gods or other creeds, other beliefs and other faiths. Even when when you get two different religions that logically are contradictory towards one another, under many circumstances, you can find people that will say, yeah, these are both talking about the same thing, even when that doesn't make any kind of sense. But the Christian faith, when properly understood, is like this. It doesn't allow for this. We worship a single God, not a pantheon of deities like the ancient Greeks or like the modern Hindus do. And that God is completely distinct from creation. God is not the world, nor is the world God. We acknowledge one savior who was able to redeem us from sin and with him one method of salvation from the wrath of God. Christianity does not allow for many ways of salvation, nor are there many gods, as we said, for us to pick and choose from and worship at our pleasure. There is one God who has made the heavens and the earth and he alone is able to be worshiped, is worthy to be worshiped. Now, why do we believe this? We believe it because God has said this about himself, has spoken definitively about himself. and When he spoke, he preserved what he meant for us to understand and for us to know in writing for all time. So in light of that, we acknowledge only certain writings, certain books, all contained in the Bible, to be authoritative. Just the Bible and not others. Now other books might be very good and very helpful in their place. They might be very good at explaining something about God that the, that the scripture reveals. For example, I'm currently listening to some audiobooks of CS Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia and some other things. It's my first time going back to Lewis in a long time, and I'm really finding him helpful as I'm reading some of his works and listening to other things. They're good, but his books are not the scripture, nor are they any kind of substitute for scripture and Lewis himself would not dispute this. He would say, my work is based upon the Bible, but you need to read the Bible before you read myself. The problem is that other books, other authors do claim to be on a par with scripture. Their authors claim that they have received some kind of revelation that calls for at least as much authority, at least as much attention as the scripture itself. That's the claims behind religions like Mormonism and Islam. They say, yes, the Bible is as good as it goes, but you really need this. To understand and to make sense of it. And they claim that their writings should be accepted as holy and revelatory. But the Christian religion rejects their claims flatly, absolutely. We believe that those other sources of revelation are not true, and nor can they be a substitute for the Bible, nor can they even be read on a par with the Bible. They cannot be read as equals in Scripture. We give the contents of one book, The Pride of Place, in our church, and the highest of authorities, because we believe that God has spoken through it and nowhere else. And in the light of what it teaches us, we believe that we are to worship God alone. In our passage today, we see the devil's temptation of Jesus, and his final temptation is a direct attempt to undermine that belief which Jesus himself had. When confronting Jesus for this last time, he offered the son of God a chance to worship something other than God to worship the devil instead, promising that he could make it worth Jesus while, but as we've said over the last couple of weeks, as long as it was in the desert, Jesus was being trained by his, father. he was under the discipline, under the training of his father and learning lessons and his final lesson. He learned so well that he could withstand even this great temptation of the devils. In our own culture, our current culture of religious conformity and pluralism, and telling us if you must worship something, you can worship whatever, and it's okay, we need to learn this same lesson too. We need to hold on to it as tightly as our Lord did. And this is the lesson for us, our theme this morning. The Son of God learned to reject everything that would compromise His exclusive worship of His Father. The Son of God learned to reject everything. That would compromise his exclusive worship of his father for Jesus Christ. There was only one who was worthy to be worshiped. We who are united to the son of God must see this too. We are taught this through the devil's temptation and through Jesus' response to him. as we've learned from the last couple of sermons on Jesus being tempted. Those will be our two points this morning. The temptation was to worship me, to worship the devil and Jesus' response. that temptation was rather worship the Lord. Satan's temptation to worship me should have sounded utterly repulsive to us as Christians. This is the antithesis of everything that we believe to worship God's not only not worship God, but to worship his greatest enemy. If that sounds bad to us, if that sounds repulsive to you and me as Christians, then what in the world was Satan thinking when he offered this temptation to Jesus? Why would Christ of all people even consider for a moment worshiping the devil? We have to start by understanding what it was that the devil was offering him. Verse 8, again the devil took him, that is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. As with our temptation that we saw last week at the temple, we don't know how the devil did this exactly. It seems that he somehow transported Jesus to a very high mountain and then gave him a supernatural vision that allowed all of the kingdoms of the world. But even if we don't know exactly how this happened, we do know what the devil was trying to do, was trying to accomplish. You see, we all have our ideas of all the great and amazing things that the ancient peoples did. For just a short example, All of us here, I'm sure, have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world and we've all had our imaginings of what those things would have been like. Perhaps you've seen pictures or replicas of those things that were built and we wondered what would it have been like to see the Great Pyramid of Giza or to see the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, like not just as a ruin, but in its heyday, in all its glory, when that last stone, when that last bit of trapping was put there. Well, the devil showed Jesus something like that, not just the seven wonders of the ancient world, but all of the wonders and all of the glories of the world with supernatural clarity in a moment's notice, the imperial might and the law of the Roman empire, the culture and wealth of Greece, the hub of learning and scholarship that was ancient Egypt, the old, old knowledge that belonged exclusively to the Israelites, all things like these were shown before Jesus Christ just to marvel at, to wonder at, and 10,000 more besides all wonders that have probably been lost to history. In a word, all of the greatest things, all of the greatest accomplishments of the human race to that point in history were on display for Jesus Christ to see with all of their attractiveness, all of their beauty buffed to a perfect high shine. Make no mistake, that would have been a sight to see. That would have been beautiful. I've told some of you that I visited Ireland while I was in college, and I got to see just how green the fields of Ireland was. You've seen pictures, I'm sure, of Ireland's field, and as beautiful as those pictures are, that's not been touched up at all. It really is that green, it really is that beautiful, but you don't really get that until you are there. And you see it with your own eyes. It's beauty. The the picture is nice, but it can't do justice to the real thing. We can see pictures of the ancient world, see pictures of ancient temples and sculptures and arrangements, and marvel at their beauty. But Jesus didn't just see the physical things from a distance. He saw them as they were, the height of their spiritual beauty, supernatural clarity, the most beautiful things that the world could possibly possibly offer him. It's more than just beauty and attractiveness. You see, by showing Jesus the entire world in this way, all the kingdoms of the world, all of their glory set before him, the devil is showing Jesus a hypothetical future, something that could be made possible. He was offering Jesus the chance at an empire that spanned the entire world, Every culture, every kingdom in the world, united together with all of its knowledge, its society, its science, its beauty, gathered together under a single throne forever. A final, infinite empire that spanned the entire globe and would have no end. This is the chance at total dominion over the world. Anything and everything that Jesus could possibly want right in front of him. And the devil is offering it. In Psalm two, verse eight, the Lord promised to make his son the ruler over all the world said, I have anointed you to be my king over the nations specifically in two, verse eight Psalm two, verse eight, it says, ask of me, God speaking to his son, and I will make the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possessions. But here in our passage in Matthew, the devil is offering Jesus the same thing he's saying I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll make them your inheritance. But it's better my way, says Satan, because the path that your father has called you to is long and difficult, and you're going to die at the end of it. Who needs that? I'll give you exactly what you were promised already, and you're not going to have to wait. You're not going to have to suffer or die. The same end, you're just going to take a shortcut, and you get the same result. As long as you're going to get the promised reward at the end, you shouldn't care. And as long as you're the one who sits on the throne of the world, no one else is going to care. It's the same exact thing, but nothing comes to human beings for free. Nothing that the devil offers is free. This gift had a price tag. Verse 9, he said to him, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. There's a toll to be collected and that toll would be the soul of Jesus Christ. He would have to kneel before the devil and say that Satan's ways of doing things were the right way. They were the supreme way. God incarnate would have to admit that his enemy was the true God and give the devil the homage, which is required of the Lord and only the Lord is worthy to receive. Temptation to sin, no matter what that temptation is, can boil down to this simple root, this simple thought. I should be the king or queen of my destiny, and I should rule my life, my domain as I see fit. If I expand it, if I diminish it, whatever I choose, because I choose to have it, because I decide that I want it. And whatever means I think are necessary, to have this happen to make my des- my desires reality, well, that's just what needs to happen. Satan was telling Jesus that he needed to adopt that same attitude. That whatever he needed to do to ensure that he that Jesus was the one who sits on the empire of the world, that's just the toll that you have to pay to cross the bridge. And ultimately, it'll be worth it. In other words the devil was telling jesus if it's your destiny to sit on the throne you gotta compromise you gotta compromise your values and play ball with me if you do that i'll give you anything you ask you see really this isn't a different kind of temptation in many ways than what satan has already offered jesus in the last couple of weeks or last couple of sermons the temptation to transform the stones into bread or the temptation to jump off of the temple and put God for the test. They came from that same core idea that I should have something that I want something that God has said I may not have right now, or I may not have it in this way. God has said something and I don't like that. And I shouldn't be bound by those rules. The thing I want to do or the thing I want to have is too important for me to be bound by the rules and for me to give up. If I need to compromise, if I need to bend my conviction to suit my needs, oh well, that's what Satan was offering Jesus the chance to think. This passage is basically doing the same thing. It's just now there's no mask, now there's no subtlety, just a naked decision that's set before Jesus. Worship me, says the devil, and I will give you what you want. Do things my way, and you can have anything you want. Continue to do it God's way, and I promise you, you will suffer for it. The shameful thing is that the devil didn't just do this to Jesus. He does this to you and me all the time. Makes that same offer to us. And speaking for myself at least, Satan has never once had to offer me anything so grand as ruling the world. Personally, for me, that's not a temptation. That's not something that I want to have happen to me. That doesn't mean that I don't have my own little empire, my own little ambitions and scopes for it. The problem is that those things that I want, those things that we generally want are pretty mundane things. We want to be loved and appreciated on our terms, by our families, our coworkers, our friends, we want to be seen at work as the one who's really in charge, who really knows what's going on at work we want to be successful in our careers and we want to be told just how awesome we really are by the people around us or at home we want to have the perfect family with our spouse and our kids just so or from the kids perspective i want my parents to lead the family just so or we want the perfect romantic life with a partner that checks every box of our wish list of attractiveness Life ought to be a well-oiled machine. We tell ourselves, everything should run smoothly towards my self-envisioned end. And the devil comes along to us and says, you're right to want that. You should have that and I'll give it to you. You just have to bend the rules a little bit. Really, you don't have to stop being a Christian, but you just have to bend your convictions just a little bit, compromise your beliefs a little bit there it's yours. I'll give it to you. And how often have we compromised? How often have we worshiped the devil in this way? Now we didn't worship him in the traditional sense of the word if you want to use that. We don't worship Satan by generally we don't worship Satan by setting up a pentagram and lighting some candles and bowing down before a creepy goat statue. No, but every time we disobey the Lord, we've implicitly told the devil Your ways are good and correct because they get me what I want. To a man and a woman, we've all given our approval to some kind of wickedness that we thought would make us happier than being faithful to the creator. In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, Jesus himself asks his disciples, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? And the implied answer to that question is nothing that there is nothing so valuable that a man ought to sell his soul in order to obtain it. But we've all been guilty of selling our souls for something that always seems so bright and so beautiful for a while that always turns around, always hurts us, always hurts someone else, always fades away, always decays and always is destructive. How great then is the mercy of God that he should look at people like us who worshiped his enemy and said, I will save them. I will redeem their souls and I will snatch them out of the jaws of death. And I will send my own son, my only son, to accomplish that salvation on their behalf. When we see the depth of our sins before us, then we are able to understand the depth of God's love and generosity for us. And he took you, even though you were a worshiper of the devil, and gave you a heart to understand that you should worship the Lord instead. As a worshiper of God now, leave behind the things that Satan says that you ought to have, that you ought to worship, because they are not worthy of your worship. Rather, hold on to the Lord Most High, and let those other things, those other desires, find their proper place in your life as he rules over you. Because that is what the Son of God did when he was presented with this last temptation of the devil. Jesus desired to rule the nations, yes, but he had a greater desire than that the desire to be faithful to his Father in heaven. We see this in his response to the devil to worship the Lord. As we said, Satan offered Jesus a pretty stark choice. Worship me, and you get the kingdom that you deserve to have, conflict free. If you defy me, then you will suffer unimaginable torture before you at last die. It's a pretty naked temptation there. But Jesus was neither impressed nor intimidated. Instead, in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He looked at the very best that the devil had to offer him and let him do his worst, and then told him, Get out of my presence. Leave me and return to your skulking in the shadows. This is a decisive rejection of temptation, that the Son of God would not bend his knee to the Prince of Darkness. Now, did he do this? Did he reject the devil because the kingdom that the devil offered him? was something that Jesus was not allowed to have, that to have Jesus reigning over the world would be an inherently bad thing. Well, not exactly. Remember what we just read in Psalm 2 verse 8, we saw that God the Father promised God the Son that he would rule the nations, that the rule over the world was the inheritance of Jesus. That was his right to have. A kingdom that spanned the entire world was promised to Jesus by his Father. So that could not have been a bad thing in itself. The kingdom wasn't the problem the problem was the terms by which satan made his offer you see the devil promised to give jesus power over all the world at the cost of jesus worshiping him satan but jesus remembered that there is only one god who is worthy to be worshipped by all creatures in heaven on earth or below the earth and god has commanded that all those creatures all people worship him alone And for Jesus to disobey this, that would have been to give glory to the creation rather than to the creator. Glory and worship are due to God alone because he is the almighty and he does not share his worship. He does not share his divine glory with anyone, not a human, not an angelic being, or any other thing. Jesus knew this because of what had been written in scripture. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, to remind himself of this and to rebuke the devil. That quotation recalls Israel's past, how they were commanded to worship the Lord alone, and how many times they had failed in that mandate. You see, practically from the beginning of their escape from Egypt and their flight into the desert, God warned Israel, gave them the Ten Commandments, and what were the first two commandments? Don't worship any God besides me, the Lord of hosts and do not make for yourself an idol to worship. And what was basically the first thing that Israel did after receiving those 10 commandments? They built a golden calf to worship the Lord in the way that they saw fit, and they rose up to play and to worship it, and just transformed the whole worship ceremony into an orgy. That's basically the first thing they did, a violation of the first two commandments as a start. Many years later, 40 years later, They encountered the Moabites, and they realized that the Moabites worshiped these awesome gods called the Baals, and they coupled themselves to those idols, we'll call it. Many years after that, some years after that, when they finally got to the Promised Land, when they had themselves settled, the vast majority of the problems that we read about in the Old Testament, how God had to discipline Israel and punish them, and ultimately led to the exile from the Promised Land, Overwhelmingly, the problems that Israel had started with them looking at the idols of their neighbors and saying, that looks awesome. I want to worship that in addition to the Lord. They kept returning to these idols time and again, even after God's rebuke and kept saying, save us because you are our God. Yahweh too, yes, but you, Baal, you, Ashtoreth, you, Molech, you're our God. You're the one who will save us. And granted, Satan isn't asking Jesus to do exactly the same thing. He's not asking Jesus to sit down and whittle out an idol of the devil to worship for Jesus to bow down to. But the same spirit of idolatry would have been at work if Jesus had given in. If he'd given in to that temptation, he would be saying, the kingdom that my father has promised me, that is that he's preparing for me, that is more important than my father himself. He would have made me into an idol the kingdom that Satan offered him. And he would have acknowledged that the devil's standards of getting what he wanted were at least an acceptable substitute for God's own. God's standards are great, but this is an okay alternative if I decide to go that way. That's what Jesus would have had to say, would have had to believe. And he knew that that was wrong. He knew that he could not do that. Moreover, waiting for the kingdom that God had prepared for him would yield a better reward than serving the devil. It's not just about wanting to obey the Lord, but also understanding what God is promising him is better than what the devil will give. You see, Satan offered the glories of all of the kingdoms of the world, but he neglected to mention something, that all of those kingdoms were stained with sin to a one, but the kingdom of heaven that the Lord was preparing for his son, it was pure and free of sin and filled with subjects who willingly joined themselves, willingly willingly became citizens of God's kingdom, joyfully, not because they were crushed as resistance. Jesus, that kind of a dominion, that kind of a kingdom was greater than the trinket that Satan offered him instead. If we could say that Jesus' future kingdom that was promised to him by his father was like a gold watch, just the most beautiful, best-made gold watch in the world. The devil came up to him and offered him a watch that was painted gold with a nice paint job, but underneath the watch was made from rusty iron slag and it didn't tell time properly. I mean, the paint job is nice, but there's no contest. One watch is objectively better. One is better to have and the other one is worthless. The devil's best offer was that rusty iron pocket watch. It looked nice at first, but he had nothing to offer the son of God that his father couldn't do something infinitely better. So on that mountaintop, facing down the prince of the power of the air, Jesus proclaimed that there was nothing on earth that was worthy of worship or reverent service besides the Lord God. He was the sole object of Jesus worship Anything that Satan could offer him would be a poor replacement for God himself, even when the entire world was offered. Jesus worshiped the Lord only, not the Lord and the devil, not the Lord and his kingdom, nor even the Lord in his own comfort and happiness. Jesus was unwilling to compromise this. And with that final temptation, the season for Jesus to be tempted came to an end. Verse 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Rebuked and cast away by the very man that he had come to corrupt, the devil is forced to leave without a prize. You see, he's offered Jesus counterfeit authority over the world, but when he was confronted with the very real authority that the Son of God already possessed, he couldn't say no. He was forced to leave. And when when at last he left, Jesus had relief finally from his struggling in the wilderness and the angels that he refused to call on before, they came in force and they began to attend to his needs. His belief that his father would provide for him, would help him be sustained in the desert, that faith was vindicated. And now for a little while, the time of suffering was at an end. What does it mean for us to worship the Lord? It's far too often, I think, people seem to think that the externals of piety, the externals of religion are sufficient. Show up to church regularly-ish, or at least show up a couple times a year, maybe at least for Christmas and Easter. For some people, sing the songs on key, try not to fall asleep as long as the pastor key blathers on for 30 odd minutes, you're good to go. But worship is not about the outer attitude, per se. Worship of the Lord starts with the heart and then is followed by the externals. The person, person, excuse me, who worships God has a right heart, a heart that loves the Lord. You see, in the deepest reaches of his soul, he loves God and he wants to be conformed to the commands of God. And to obey isn't a hardship, even though it may well be very difficult, And it's not a burden, even though it may involve great suffering be like God and to worship him is a joy that surpasses anything else. The greatest joy that corrects any other desire, any other happiness and puts those things into their proper places. But the only man who has ever had a heart like this from beginning to end was Jesus Christ, the son of God. No matter how good something might have been, no matter how pleasing it seemed. If it would have compromised the worship that he gave to his father, Jesus wanted nothing to do with it. A person might have seen him and said that this guy is a fanatic, who just kind of needs to chill out a little bit. But Christ was living life as it was meant to be lived, in exclusive worship and dedication to his father in heaven. That's how human life is supposed to be lived out. There's nothing fanatical about that. Because of that perfect worship, God, the father was pleased to receive us, is, is pleased currently to receive us, even though we were disobedient wretches. Now he calls us his own sons and daughters, and he's provided a home for us in his heavenly family. Jesus' righteousness has been counted to you as yours, and you are reckoned as a law keeper in God's eyes, a gift beyond anything we can fully understand, beyond anything we could ask for, has been given to us as Christians, such as the love of God for those whom he has shown grace and favor to. And because of that love, we have freedom from the domain of Satan, citizenship in God's eternal kingdom, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. According to Ephesians chapter two, we used to be dead in sin, spiritually dead. And we followed in the ways of Satan in our innermost being. Whatever we did on the outside, whatever our thoughts were, used to be hostile to God and hostile to anything that had to do with him. But listen to what God did for us through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, but God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The work of salvation that is credited to you came about because our Lord did not shrink back from worshiping his Father, even though obedience led him to suffering throughout his life and led him ultimately to the cross. And love for God met with love for you and me led Jesus to worship his father above all else, even above his own safety, his own comfort. At the heart of worship, there's a question. What is the one thing that I will order my entire life around? What is the thing that I answer to when it tells me to sacrifice my comforts, my time, my money, my anything and everything? There's only one thing in your life that can be first and worship says what is it? According to Jesus, only Jesus, is only God, is worthy of that place in your heart, that first place. As you said, He does allow us to make substitutes for ourselves. Nor does He allow us to worship Him and something else, anything else alongside Him. We are called to worship the Lord alone, and Him only do we serve. Him only do we give our reverent devotion and service to the problem with other gods and other objects of worship, whether they are personified idols, things like Zeus or Thor or Loki, or simply other things, perhaps a person whose entire life is focused around, say, money. I work as hard as I can so that I can have as much as I can. Or the person whose life is focused around, let's say, lust. I want myself to be the most attractive, to be the most desirable person I can be. The problem with those idols, Is that they cannot deliver on the promises of happiness and fulfillment that they make. As human beings, we are made to long for that perfect, uninterrupted happiness and satisfaction. We long for that. We're made to long for that. And those other things, whatever they are, Satan sets them up in our life and he says, This is it. This will give you that uninterrupted happiness and satisfaction that you want. But however. Well, they, when they start acting out of order, when they start taking our first place in our lives, they let us down. Okay, oh, Calvin, no oh, Calvin, what are you doing? Uh-huh. Are you doing? Uh-huh. Are you doing? Uh-huh. They time, they started to do that, they started to do that, do do right? And only the Lord can make good on the promise of infinite happiness and blessing that we all want. And when that is properly understood, that's given pride of place in our minds, then those other loves, those other affections that we have, they start to take their appropriate places. They start to, they stop being out of order and start to work for the good of God, for the good of our fellow man. But when we go after things like food, money, pleasure, other things for their own sake, they leave us dissatisfied every time. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Let us not make the creation into an idol for ourselves. Rather, let us give glory to God and worship him alone. As we serve Him, He will take care of us and provide us with everything that we need, every good gift that comes to us. Having seen Jesus' temptations fell across very clearly and seen how He suffered at the hands of the devil, perhaps you're seeing arrows in your life and wonder when will it end? Will it end? Will I ever be free from this burden of temptation and finally just be let free? so that I don't have to worry about being tempted anymore. That means that the devil is given a season of us. But the good news is that it is only a season. It feels like a long time right now as we're living in it. But it's really not that long of a time in the span of eternity, which is what Jesus reigns over. So let us take heart, encourage one another, and not give up hope. Because the day is Jesus will rebuke the devil and order him away from you forever. The day free from temptation is coming. Until that day comes, let us take hold of God's word to us, Jesus' righteousness, and remember that when the devil tries to force us to bend the knee to him, the Lord of hosts will help you to stand on him alone. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you that you alone are to be worshipped and that you've called us to worship you. You sent your son Jesus Christ to make this clear, to make us able to worship you, Father, here this morning. So we ask, Father, that not just this morning in church, but every detail of our life, Father, help us to offer you the worship that you deserve. We ask, Father, that you bless us in Jesus Christ's name and sustain us in him. It's in his holy name that we pray, Father. Amen.